Hi there, folks. My name is Emily, and you are tuned in to E Pluribus Unum, a podcast where we discuss culture, current events, philosophy, etc., and try to open our minds and think about things from different perspectives. Because I think when we are aware of other people's perspectives and open up our mind and think about things in a different way, that's how we can achieve the unity that we're supposed to reach as Americans. Unity isn't about all being the same in terms of how we think or the things that we do, but about being united by common values, which I think we do share, we just don't really talk about them in a very good way. So I'm here to talk about those values and those things that we share and getting to the the core of things. One person is pro high taxes to help the poor, and one is pro being involved in community organizations that help the poor. But what's the common core there? Helping the poor, right? And everyone agrees on that. So it's just about finding the the common ground in these big debates and questions and arguments that we have about things. I want to wish a happy Passover to everyone who is currently celebrating and to those who celebrated Easter this past weekend. Hopefully it was a meaningful holiday. I had a topic I was going to start out with today and it's in my notes and we'll get there. But I have to share a very interesting interaction I just had with someone. As most of you know, if you've been listening, I am having a baby, God willing, very soon. So this woman that I don't really know, but we're involved in a community organization together, she called me earlier today saying that she had made me a baby gift and she wanted to bring it over. So she came over and she brought me the gift, adorable little crocheted baby booties. Everything for babies is adorable and little, by the way, but these are handmade, so that bumps up the adorable and the cuteness factor times 100. So she sat here and we talked for about 20 minutes, half an hour. And I asked her how her satyrs, which are the big meal celebrations that we have on the first two nights of Passover, I asked her how hers were, if she had any guests over, family, etc. And she told me that she only had friends over partially because her children and grandchildren live in different places. But The ones who live closest to her, only three hours away, couldn't come because they're anti-vax. And so she sort of made this dismissive, waving away gesture as she was talking about them. We didn't want them there. They could come next time. We'll see you on Zoom. And then we moved on the conversation from there. I don't like to get into talking about the vaccine with people. First of all, the vaccine just, whether you're on one side or the other, gets people too worked up. And really what people do for their own personal health is pretty much between them and their doctor and their spouse. It's not in my business. So I don't really get into the vaccine talk very much. And especially with someone I don't know very well who was bringing me a gift. I wasn't going to get into anything political or controversial. It wasn't worth it. But what an interesting anthropological study, maybe, but also what an important reminder for us. So here's this woman again, who I really don't know very well, took time to crochet, for me, someone that she doesn't know very well, little baby booties, right? So incredibly thoughtful. Such a sweet thing to do, right? You would you would think, like, uh, it just, it's a very, very, very nice thing to do. On the other hand, she dismissively waved away her own, I think, son and daughter-in-law and didn't want them to come to the Seder because they didn't have a vaccine, If you had heard these two things about a person, you might assume that they were about two different people, right? Oh my goodness, who 
wouldn't include their own family in the Seder, which is a family celebration and the most celebrated Jewish tradition. And on the other hand, this must be a saintly woman who would crochet booties for someone she doesn't really know. But this is the same woman. Both of these stories, right? It's the same person. And I think that's a really good reminder, brings into relief the fact that people are mixed bags. Most of us are mixed bags of things. We're not all one thing or the other. We are contradictory. We are hypocritical and not on purpose. We just are. We hold different views about different things. Some people are more liberal about certain ideas and more conservative about other ones and not even necessarily in a political sense, but you know, someone might be more free with how they dress, let's say, but very conservative about not cursing, using curse words. People are just all sorts of things. We're not one thing or the other, not all bad, not all good, most of us. And it's important to remember that because we like to just put people into boxes. And there's nothing wrong with sorting people into boxes per se. I think that's how the human mind copes with the world is by making generalizations. If we didn't make generalizations, we wouldn't be able to handle the fact that there is all this variety. So we have to make some sort of generalization about people. But then on a personal basis, we have to recognize people's individuality and their humanity and that there is variety, not just between people, but within people. Like I said, I didn't intend to talk about that, but when I say it just happened, I mean, it happened five minutes before I started recording. So I had to share that because that I think is so central to what I'm trying to do with this podcast, which is to remind people that the person on the other side of the political aisle is also a person who has dreams and desires and hopes and loves and family and feelings and thoughts. They're not just Trump supporter or Biden supporter, that there's so much more to that person than that one particular thing. What I was actually going to start today's episode with was a very quick thought, but it's something that keeps on going through my mind. It's a song that keeps going through my mind. So if you can reel back to January 6th of this year, there were all sorts of Twitter posts and Instagram posts and things on the news about, you know, one year after the January 6th riots. I didn't pay really any attention to any of it because I thought from both sides, it's just going to be annoying and stupid and There's so many more important things to pay attention to, like this little bundle of life in my tummy that keeps kicking me and making me nauseous. I wasn't paying attention, especially to the social media posts about it, because the social media posts about it were probably worse than whatever was happening on CNN and Fox and MSNBC or whatever. But my husband did share with me one video that this girl had made. It was a parody song, and he shared it with me because he is actually a really good parody song maker. He can improvise them and he can also write them down in either way. He's very funny. So he likes to listen to other parody songs to get, you know, inspiration and see what people are doing and some of the tips and tricks, what to do and sometimes what not to do. And this might have been an example of what not to do. So it was a girl. I don't remember all the lyrics, but only one that's really important. She was using This Land Is Your Land as the tune and underneath her singing, she was showing pictures of the January 6th riots versus the BLM riots. And the line, the only line I remember, because it was the line that he and I talked about was, these are not equivalencies. These are not 
equivalencies. Fine. So that's all I remember. And like any other song that gets stuck in my head every once in a while, that line, just that line gets stuck in my head. Even though I only listened to the song once, it's just an earworm and it gets stuck in my head. So I've been thinking about it. She's right, actually. They were not equivalent. What happened on January 6th of 2021 and the BLM riots. One of those was much worse. And the one that was worse was the BLM riots. This is not because I agree maybe with one side's political motivations and not the others. And it's not even specifically about the amount of damage caused, though, of course, in terms of amount of damage caused and people who were hurt, the BLM riots were much worse. But it's about just what the kind of riots were. It's definitely not equivalent to loot and riot in your own neighborhood at the stores of innocent people who have nothing to do with anything that has happened to the thing that you are protesting against versus the seat of government. Yes, it's a big deal to riot if it, they even were riots on January 6th, which they probably weren't. But just for the sake of today, it definitely wasn't an insurrection. So we'll, we'll use the term riot. Fine. Inappropriate gathering. We're using the term riot for today. But that's like in the American spirit. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary, like the people we should be protesting against are the ones in power. If we're going to protest about injustice, then we should protest at the people who have power over injustice. But rioting at a local 7-Eleven or a bakery or a florist shop and ruining the livelihood of an innocent person because some person who happens of the skin color, same skin color as you, was killed by a policeman in a state halfway across the country, that's ridiculous. It's funny. This girl and I actually agree in totally <laughs> different ways, of course, because she thinks what happened at the Capitol was much worse. And I think what happened across the country during the summer of 2020 was much worse. But I'm, I'm talking from a moral perspective, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Morally speaking, it seems to me so much worse to riot and loot innocent stores as opposed to the government, which which you can also say is problematic. You can also say January 6th was not a smart move. I'll be honest, there's so much misinformation about January 6th that even as much as I hear, it's difficult to make a pronouncement one way or the other. But from a strictly moral perspective, which type of rioting is more correct, is more moral? Clearly they're not equivalent and clearly it's much more moral, at least in my mind to riot where where the seat of power is as opposed to with innocent people. Anyway, I know we're far removed from January 6th at this point, but that song every once in a while plays through my head. So maybe now that I've talked it out, it won't play through my head so much and I can have something good in there like a Disney song. Disney is its own issue right now, but their old music is still really good or an oldie song or something else and not this <laughs> random TikTok girl <laughs> using this land is your land. Along the same vein of my earlier topic about my elderly friend who gifted me some crocheted baby booties and the idea that people are mixed bags, I want to talk about a book I'm reading by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. So Rabbi Sachs, he passed away in 2020, but he was the chief rabbi of England for a while, and he is just a brilliant scholar and a very 
wise man. And he approaches Judaism from an orthodox perspective, but also from a rational perspective. It's intellectual, but also emotional. Whether you are orthodox or not, even whether you're Jewish or not, his insights into Judaism and what it has to say to the world is very interesting. So I got one of his books out of the library. It must have been the last book he wrote. It came out in 2021. It's called Morality. And he's talking about basically what happened to morality. Where has it gone in the world? What shape does it take today? How do we as people connect to morality? He covers a whole host of topics from business to mental health and depression and physical health and social media and a focus on I versus a focus on we and politics. He talks about a wide variety of things. While I connect with so much of what he says, I realize as I read the book that there are things that we disagree on. For instance, he was very focused on the dangers of global warming. Also, politically, he was in England, um, so I don't know exactly his politics. He actually is pretty fair when he talks about politicians, both in the UK and in the US, because he will comment upon the behavior of politicians on both sides of the aisle and in a very in the way that we're supposed to comment on people who differ politically, which is commenting on the ideas, but not on the person. What I'm realizing from reading him is that he is just a perfect example of how we are supposed to refer to other people's arguments, how we're supposed to engage with people, how we're supposed to or how we should think about ideas. Like I said, he was very focused on the dangers of global warming, not quite to a fanatic sense, at least it doesn't seem like it in the book, but certainly to a much greater extent than I am concerned. But I find that I'm able to read what he writes about because he doesn't write in a scathing, attacking way. He writes in a thoughtful way. He presents his arguments. He presents different sides of arguments and he doesn't attack anyone. And I'm reading it and I'm thinking how refreshing it is to read something that isn't attacking anyone for their beliefs or their thoughts, but is presenting arguments in a way which is intellectually engaging. And because he presents it that way, I'm able to think about the things that he says instead of just being defensive, which is what so often happens when people say things that we don't agree with. They say it in such a way, or even if they don't say it in such a way, but especially if it's said in a way which is offensive, then we are automatically defensive. And once we get into that defensive stance, we're not listening anymore. We're not able to engage and think and learn, right? We're just defending a position that we already had. Well, great. We're defending our position. We already have the other person's defending the position they already had. Nothing is being accomplished in this conversation, except that we're both getting our blood pressure up and getting angry. Whereas in an argument for the sake of heaven, which is what the Talmud teaches us is the appropriate way to have an argument. We are arguing, we're discussing, we're debating, if you don't want to say arguing, because arguing maybe has an angry connotation to it, but we're discussing or debating for the purpose of expanding each other's knowledge. In Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, Ben Zoma said, who is wise? He who learns from all men. We're supposed to be learning from all people, but it's really hard to learn from people who disagree with us because we automatically get into that defensive posture. And a lot of times the people who disagree with us come at us with such virulence that we wonder why we would ever listen to them. But the truth is most people 
have something to teach us, even more so if we disagree with them. They have something to teach us because they have a perspective that we don't have. So they have something to share. They have a perspective that we aren't able to see. And I'm 100% including myself in this, by the way. This is not, oh, you people out there don't know how to have a conversation or debate, but I learned from everyone. No, no, no. 100%. Me too. I'm in this. That it's really hard for me to listen to someone who disagrees with me, whether it's in a podcast or in a book or in an actual conversation and take from what they're saying, because I automatically, when they say something I disagree with, I want to point out why they're wrong, or at least defend my own position, and it's so hard to listen, but they have something to say. I'll give you one example specifically from this book by Rabbi Sachs. So one of the other things that he talked about, which before reading him, I don't think I had particularly strong thoughts on, In one of his chapters, he's talking about ethics and morality and business, because Judaism is very particular about the morality of business and business ethics. So he points out some interesting numbers. The discrepancy between what CEOs make and and a low-level employee at companies. So in the United States, for instance, in 1965, the ratio of CEO to low-level employee was 20 to 1. In 2021, that number is 312 to one. In the UK in 1998, the ratio was 45 to 1 CEO to low level employee. And in 2010, it was 120 to 1. So a big leap, right? Certainly a big leap from 1965 to 2021, but also in the UK from 98 to 2010. And of course, 2010 is already 12 years ago. So who knows what it is now? And I've always been of the opinion that having been a low-level employee, specifically at Disneyland, because people at Disney would always complain about how little money we were making compared to the CEOs. And I would remind people that anyone could do our jobs. We were eminently, eminently? We were replaceable. We were totally and completely replaceable. You technically had to have graduated from high school to work there, but even that wasn't really necessary. And I love working at Disneyland. It was my favorite job ever. But anyone could have done our job. Being the CEO of Disney is a little bit different. So I never really struggled with the fact that the CEO would make gobs more money than I would as a low-level employee. But the way Rabbi Sachs started writing about it got me thinking, should there be some cap? And I'm not saying a government cap because I like to keep the government out of things as much as possible, but just from an internal sense of right and wrong, should CEOs limit their salary to some reasonable proportion of what the employees are making? And the answer might be no, from your perspective. The answer might be, look, the CEO has to make really high risk decisions and is putting in 80 hours where the low level employee is putting in 40 and whatever. That And that's fine. You can think that. I What I'm saying here is that because of the way Rabbi Sachs writes, I was able to rethink something and to open my mind to a new perspective. Because I'd never really thought about it before, except for the times that people complain, in which I didn't really care about that discrepancy. But the way he described it, the idea of this, you know, internal morality, this internal business ethic of not having such a big discrepancy, I'm starting to think about it a little bit differently. Or I should say, at least I'm starting to think about it more deeply. And that's what we are supposed to be doing. We're s- throughout our lives, we shouldn't get to 
25 and think we have everything figured out or 30 or 45 or whatever age and think we have everything figured out. We should constantly be rethinking and engaging with ideas, even though there are certain things, morally speaking, that are basic fundamental truths that that do not change, that are right and wrong no matter what. Thinking of the Ten Commandments, right? Murder is wrong. Theft is wrong. But that doesn't mean that we stop thinking about those things. We should still think about all the different repercussions and and engage with ideas. We shouldn't say my morality is set and I'm not thinking about it anymore. Because even if your your thoughts on morality don't change, you have to be able to articulate them. And it's one thing to believe something or know something is wrong. Say it's in the Ten Commandments. But if you can't defend why those Ten Commandments are so important, then the fact that you believe it is good for you. Good. So you won't be murdering people. But can you pass on to other people? Let's talk about envy, right? Envy is also one of the Ten Commandments. Can you rationally defend why envy is bad? We know it's bad. The Ten Commandments tell us, but that's not enough. It's certainly not enough of an argument for someone who's not religious. They'll say that the Ten Commandments are archaic, or they were written by a man, and who cares about them? Or who can tell me how to feel? Right? We have to have our thoughts, and we can have them be very secure, but we still have to understand why we have them. So we should constantly be engaging with ideas of morality and examining and and thinking about it and talking about it. I always think of Dennis Prager because he mentions how when you're in your 20s and you're in college, you're talking about these big ideas of life. But then at some point you get married, you have a job and you have kids and you start, your conversations become about the minutia of day-to-day life. Who's going to pick up the dry cleaning? Actually, do people get dry cleaning anymore? Who's going to take the kids to soccer? Who's going to get the groceries? Who's going to vacuum the house? Whatever. And you don't have time anymore for these big discussions, but these big discussions are so important. Bigger than politics. I think people talk politics a lot, current events, but I think we need to expand past that, not just politics and, oh my goodness, did you hear what Biden said yesterday? Did you hear what Trump said yesterday? It has to go beyond that. Finally today, I want to talk about Passover for a bit, but more specifically, or more broadly, I should say, I want to use Passover as a basis for discussion about our connection with history and how we raise our kids. In Judaism, our connection to our history is very real. It's intellectual. Certainly, there are books and you can have discussions about it. It's emotional. There are stories that we talk about, especially with the Holocaust. You know, some of those are really heart-wrenching stories. It's physical. When you think about the Passover Seder, there are things that we physically do to remember the slavery of the Jews in Egypt. And it's also personal. During the Seder, we say we were slaves. In every generation, a person must believe that he himself was taken out of Egypt. We use very personal pronouns. This connection to history is very different than how I think most people connect to history throughout the world. I can only comment really on other Americans, but I bet it's similar no matter what country one is in. We say they. They did the Boston Tea Party. They fought the Revolutionary War. Maybe if it's more recent history, you know, if we, if we had a grandparent, someone that we actually knew, then there might be a more personal connection to it in you know, World War II but, or Vietnam. But certainly going back to our founding, we think of these great figures, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, almost more mythical than real. 
in Judaism, we talk about Moses. We call him Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu. It means our teacher. Our, right? Not their, our teacher. Currently, still, we learn from Moshe. That is such a personal connection. I definitely feel more personally connected to Moshe, to Moses, than I do to any of the American founders, even though Moses lived much longer ago than the American founders. But it's the way that we talk about them. There's this personal connection, and we revisit it all the time. It's not just learning American history in eighth grade and 11th grade, whatever equivalent grades you learn about it in school, and then that's it. Every year we have a Seder, and we include kids in it, and it's for us, and it's for older adults, and it's for everyone, and some things don't change, and something, sometimes it can get boring. It, it's true because you're doing the same thing year in and year out. But there's something to be said for doing the same thing year in and year out. Yes, we read the same paragraphs every year, but every year it means something a little bit different because we're different each year. Reading it at eight doesn't have the same effect as reading it at 20 or reading it at 40. And of course, reading it as a single person is different than reading it as a married person or reading it as someone without children and then someone with children. So each time we go through it, even though it's the same, we're different, but it's still our personal connection to it. And what is our connection to this history? We're really delving into it, right? We're going into it, we're talking about how bitter it was to be slaves, how hard, how awful the Egyptians were. And then we also look towards the future. The end of the Seder is, we say, next year in Jerusalem. So it's this look back at history and also a look forward. In American culture, we miss both of those aspects. We look back at history, but we don't really think of it as ours. And we also don't really look forward. We get mired down in history and what did happen and the injustices and the immoralities that used to be, but we don't really see it as our own. We use they... Or some people use you in an accusatory way to talk about history. But then there's no looking forward. Okay, yes, we were slaves and now we're free. Or not even looking forward, looking to today. We say that in the Seder. We say we were slaves and now we're free. It's both. There's the bitterness of slavery and the sweetness of freedom, of how we live today. And you need both. You need to have the historical context and be aware of where you came from, what life was like for your ancestors in order to appreciate where you are today. But then you have to actually appreciate where you are today. I listened to two different podcasts recently, totally unrelated podcasts, but they were both talking about youth. One was talking about Jewish Orthodox youth and the guest on the podcast was saying that we live in such amazing times for Jewish Orthodox youth because they can very freely walk around in neighborhoods, not just in New York and New Jersey and Los Angeles and Chicago, but anywhere in the United States. They can freely walk around and be Jewish and be loud and open about it and not really have to worry about backlash, about anti-Semitism. And it's instilled in them this pride and this joy in sharing their Judaism. Contrast that with many in the Black community who are told that the world is against them, that there are systemic issues keeping them from achieving 
anything or that one day will get to them, especially if they're a black male, the police are out to get them. And then people wonder about discrepancies in different cultures. Why are Jews so successful and why are there so many problems in the black community? Are there also problems in the Jewish community? Obviously. Are there also many, many talented and successful black people? Of course. But when we're talking about the communities overall, why is there this discrepancy? Well, one group of people you're telling to have gratitude and to see how lucky their lives are. And the other you're telling your life sucks and nothing ever is going to happen for you. Well, what do you expect those kids are going to do? If you're telling a kid that they're never going to amount to anything, why would they try? It doesn't really matter whether it's what the race of the kid is. If you were just a bad parent who told your kid you're never going to amount to anything, you might have that one rare kid who purposely is defiant, but very likely you're just squashing that kid's spirit. But if you build your kid up, they feel like they can achieve and then they do achieve. I just read Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck, which which was written in 1961, but he has the same outlook. Things, human nature doesn't really change, even if the circumstances change. And he's talking about this black family he grew up with. There was only one black family when he grew up in Salinas, California, which makes sense. Most of the people around him were white or Mexican. That was the world he lived in. There was one black family and he comments how they were just part of the community and how good it was for those boys that they were never told by people at the time, probably wouldn't have been so much the black community as the white community, telling them, you're not good enough, you'll never amount to anything. But it doesn't really matter where that message is coming from. If the message is, you can achieve, then you feel like you can achieve and you'll work at it. If the message is, everything is against you, then you're going to feel that everything is against you and you'll see the world through that prism. And everything that happens, whether it's getting laid off from a job, which happens to everyone, or getting pulled over by the police, which happens to everyone, or getting sick, everything, you'll start putting it through a different prism. You put it through the prism of the world's against me. Or if you're grateful for everything, you put it through the prism of, wow, how lucky I am. Okay, I have this minor setback, but look at all these other wonderful blessings I have in my life. I'm not saying that Judaism is right about everything, but we get a lot of things right. And our connection to history and gratitude and our outlook on the world, it works. And look, people, it's worked for thousands of years. The Jews are the minority of minorities in terms of numbers. And yet people don't realize that we're a minority because we are so in the public eye. Now, many Jews who are in the public eye aren't very practicing Jews. They're of Jewish heritage. But nonetheless, there is something about Jews especially in the United States, but in other countries too. Throughout history, Jews have been involved, even when they've been the most oppressed and there have been so many laws restricting what they can and can't do, they are involved because of our sense of history, because of our connection to God, because of the way we educate our children, because of the fact that we do educate our children, boys and girls. There's so many different reasons that we still exist thousands of years later and when was the last time you met a Jebusite, right? There are all these huge empires and clans that existed that don't exist anymore. And we still exist. Even if you don't really like us, you have to admit that there's clearly something we're doing right. We've got something going on for us, right? To have existed this long and still be not just existing, but thriving. I'm just saying, maybe people want to, you know, <laughs> look at where the successful people are. I mean, that's what People do on a one-to-one -one basis, right? If you want to be an actor, you look at what successful actors have done. If you want to be 
a successful lawyer, you look at successful lawyer. If you want to be a good parent, you read parenting books by really successful parents. Well, maybe if people want to be successful cultures, they should look at successful cultures. And are there other successful cultures? Sure. But which has lasted longest? Jews. So I don't know. Maybe we have something to teach the world. That's all I'm saying. Thank you all so much for listening today. That was a lot of topics. I had a lot to get in today. And as you notice, we've gone to a once a month format. Um, that's primarily due to the fact that being pregnant is really tiring. Something that they don't tell you, or even if they tell you, you can't really fathom until you're in the middle of it. But I'm really tired all the time. So doing a podcast even once a month takes a lot of energy, but I still think it's very important to have these discussions and I really want to be here with you folks. So that's why I've tried to continue with it, but we are doing once a month. We may have a summer break when the baby is born. The baby is due in about three weeks. I, being a first-time mom, have no idea how I'm going to feel and no idea what kind of time I'll have. Probably some of you are laughing right now at the thought that I'll have any time to do a podcast. So I might be taking a summer break, but maybe I'll find the time to do once a month and I can have pass the baby on to parents or in-laws or husband or something for me to be able to record and edit. So I will keep you folks posted on Instagram. But if I do take a break over the summer, rest assured I'll be back. Just be a summer break while I get accustomed to keeping another human alive. And I'm sure that I'll have a lot more interesting things to share once I'm a parent. And I can't wait to share that with you. But until then, thank you so much for listening. Oh, I never did come up with a new ending. For this. Well, you know what? Since we're in the Omer, which is the seven-week period from Passover until Shavuot, and we are learning from Ethics of the Fathers, why don't I take something from Ethics of the Fathers to end this off? We'll go to a very classic one from Hillel, who said, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? But if I am only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? And with those words of wisdom from the great Rabbi Hillel, I bid you adieu until next time. Thank you for listening to E Pluribus Unum. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and a review. And please share the podcast with anyone you think would benefit from some common sense and thoughtfulness. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at E Pluribus Unum Podcast. You can also find me on Locals at E Pluribus Unum Podcast.locals.com. The intro and end music is Chopin's Etude. Opus 10, number one in C major, known as the Waterfall Etude.